And that's important because, uh, like I mentioned last week, every single one of the statements right now, everything that we believe are basic tenets of faith, what makes matter, what, what we believe at the core of matter is, uh, there has been a lot of pushback in church over the years. Not necessarily manner, but over the years, there have been a lot of people questioning it. And you know what? At the core, questioning is not bad. But for me, I think you need to know something, is that summer is the time for me to relax. It's paradise for me. It's a season to rejuvenate. It's a season of rest. And if I'm constantly having to question what is real and what is true all the time, I think that causes a lot of anxiety. And so that anxiety winds up causing you to freeze and put you in a position of doubt. And the thing about doubt is that doubt and unbelief are two separate things. Doubt is being uncertain. It's a lack of conviction, which means that you are indecisive in your decision-making process. And so I don't think, so what we want to do this summer is I just want to go over uh, the various uh, statements of faith in our doctrinal statement and uh, talk a little bit about why people are pushing back about it and why we believe what we do on an intellectual and scriptural level about it. But in order to do that, you can't talk about what's real and true without talking about false teaching and what it is and what it's not and how God's word feels about it. So I believe that today what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to read and understand from the book of Jude what exactly uh, God's feeling on false teaching is. So I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I normally do. Is my mic on? Everyone can hear me? Am I all good? Okay. I'm going to put the text up on the screen, and I want the whole church to read the the sections of Scripture uh, that are in yellow. So here we go. This is the reading of God's Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blasphemy the glorious ones. 
Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love fest, which would have been their, uh, which would have been their uh, version of a, of a potluck. As they feast with you without fear, shep- they are shepherds feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up foam for their shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of the utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness, for they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain, a, gain advantage. Sorry. <laughs> this is the reading of God's word. Wow, that's a lot, eh? And so we're going to unpack it for you, and uh, I hope that you will find this uh, very encouraging and edifying for you today. The first thing I want to talk about is who Jude is. The very first verse says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, in a brother of James. Now I want to stop there. Who, who is Jude? It says that he is a believer in Jesus. And that he's the brother of some guy named James. Well why do we care if he's, his brother's name is James? Why does that matter to us now? Because I want to tell you that that is a actually reference to who Jude is. Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6 verse 3 tell us that Uh, Jesus had multiple brothers and sisters, and there's at least four of them that the Bible names, specifically in Matthew, one named James and the other named Jude. So what you have here is you have a book. You have a book written by Jesus' half-brother, okay? Which is really kind of cool, because if you think about it, I've always wondered what would happen if one of Jesus' relatives or his mom got to write a book in the Bible. Well, you have one, right? It's Jude. And I would be kind of wondering, okay, Jude, you got to tell me what Jesus was like as a kid. Was he annoying? Like, is it annoying to be, a, did, he, did, you, did he rat you out all the time when you did something wrong? Was it hard to live up to someone who didn't sin all the time? Like, tell me what it's like to, to, to be Jesus' brother. What we know about Jude and his other brothers is they're kind of a little bit like Joseph brothers, if you know that story, in that they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay? But after time and after the, res- the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Jesus' brothers came to a saving faith in Jesus. So here you have Jude, a brother of Jesus, and all that he wants to talk about is Jesus himself. He says this, For I was eager to write to you for the common faith that we have. So there he is. He's like, I'm Jesus' brother. I'm also also a believer in Jesus. And here's what I want to do. I want to write to you about Jesus. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to spend some time talking about this. And this is the heart that every pastor has. Pastors, I mean most of us, I can't speak for all of us, but most pastors, they don't want to talk about what's wrong all the time. They want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about his grace. They want to talk about who he is and how awesome he is and what he was like and what he taught and all this kind of thing. And this is what Judah, or Jude, actually wants to say. He's like, I want to write to you and I want to teach you about Jesus. But there is a problem for him. Something important he needs to address. He has found out that there is false teaching that has infiltrated the church. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Uh, Next slide. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in its sensuality and deny the only master or Lord Jesus Christ. So here he is, and here's the deal, is he wants to talk about Jesus, but then he finds out that there's false teaching in the church, that somehow, and we're not talking about people who are well-intentioned, who genuinely believe in Jesus that just got something wrong. We're talking about people who are intentionally trying to deceive the church and other Christians to think that they are Christians in order to infiltrate the church and teach and get some sort of financial or sort of some sensual gain from it. That's what's going on here. And so what is the false teaching that he is, he is addressing? Well, it says right at the end of the verse, in verse 4, is that the teaching that is going on is that they are, they are, they, there is a teaching going around in the church that you can use God's grace and forgiveness for an immoral life, right? Who pervert the grace of our, our God and its sensuality. And they're also going around denying that the only master is Jesus Christ. So Jude actually has to deal with this before he actually wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. And I think there means the name point of the message that I want to give this morning, and that's this. If you want to hit the next slide for me. There are times when we must address false teaching within the church. You know, as a pastor, I do not want to talk about what's wrong all the time. Okay? I, in fact, I could talk about what's wrong all the time and never talk about right. I could talk about how different religions have the wrong viewpoint, how atheism is wrong, how Buddhism is wrong. All these different things are wrong. But I actually don't want to do that because the truth of the matter is, is I could spend so much time condemning different worldviews and different actions. I could actually, you wouldn't know what is true and what is right anymore, okay? 
I could spend Sunday after Sunday addressing why this world of view is wrong, and I, but I could, I could spend so much time that I don't actually talk about Jesus, and I don't think any pastor really wants to do that. However, there are times when there are teachings that abound in the church that make their way into the church that we actually need to address from time to time. That's what Jude is doing here. The distinction I want to make here is that Jude wants to make sure that it's not Christian teaching versus non-Christian teaching, and it's not even a battle between Christians and false Christians. It's a battle between Christians in the pulpit. The problem is not about false Christians in the pews. The problem in Jude is to overcome false Christians in the pulpits, those who have crept in unnoticed, who are leading God's people astray. Here's what I want you to understand very clearly from Jude. Genuine Christians are in a fight to defend the truths of Scripture against the lies of those who teach in the church out of private visions or vain philosophy or cultural norms of the day. Okay? It's a fight within the church that, we, that Jude is having, not a fight against the world. There's lots of things that we could talk about with the world, but genuine Christians from time to time must address different false teaching that comes in the church. And you know what? I don't like doing that. You want to know why? I like people. <laughs> and I don't want to make enemies out of people. And You know, I, uh, I think there's a difference between false teaching and just two Christians who disagree on a theological point. So I'm very, very hesitant to call out something as false from the pulpit. But there are times that we we need to, and Jude actually gives us two reasons why in Scripture. And I want to throw this slide up if you have it. Number one, we need, Jude addresses false teaching in, in the church because number one, it's subtle. Because false teaching is subtle, we are all vulnerable for falling for it. And number two, because false teaching is useless, making decisions on your life based on it can destroy your life. Well, let, me, let me talk about this really quickly. Let me read from verse 4 to verse 7. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And, then I, and I want to jump down to 5. Now I want you to remind you that although you were once, everyone once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Here's what I want you to hear from this. Both the angels and the people that were led out of Egypt fell prey to false teachers and false gods and were punished for it. Jude is using them as a warning that even even those who are close to God, who grew up in church, who went to homeschool, who watched Veggie Tales, who did Bible quizzing, can fall for false teaching. Because it can go unnoticed, we are all vulnerable to it. The church is not immune to false teaching, and neither are you as an individual Christians. Let me show you this. Let me give you a really practical example. I'm going to try my own Bible quizzing game with you, okay? So I don't know if you have those slides there. I'm going to 
I'm going to show, I'm going to put up a series of quotes on the screen. And you have to tell me whether or not it belongs in the Bible or it belongs to a famous pop song. Okay? Let's see if you can do it. Okay? And just so we don't kind of embarrass anybody, just kind of do it in your head. Don't raise your hands or anything. Just kind of go along for this. Okay? Number one, she cries to herself to sleep at night with tears soaking her pillow. Is that a famous lyric to a pop song, or is that in the Bible? Lock in your answer. Answer? Lamentations 1 verse 2. Next one. Your dot, 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 knives and swords and weapons that you use against me. Does it belong in the Bible, or is it a lyric to a pop song? Answer from Taylor Swift and Mean. Okay. Let's go on. How about this one? My eyes are blind with tears. My stomach is in a knot. Does this belong in the Bible or is this a Taylor Swift lyric? Answer Lamentations 2.11. Okay. Let's keep going. Let's do a few more. You're like a lion ready to pounce. Taylor Swift lyric, or does it belong in the Bible? Answer? Lamentations 3.10. Next one. This yearning is the deep part of my heart for you. Anyone want to take a guess and want to say it out loud? Yes? Bible? Bible? What's the answer? Ain't Nothing About You by Taylor Swift. Okay. Next. I'll never forget the trouble, dot, 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 the poison I've swallowed. Does it belong in the book of Bible or, or a Taylor Swift song? Bible? Answer? Lamentations 3, verse 19. All right, we'll stop. Go back, to the, uh, go back to the notes for a minute. Now, I'm just kind of curious how many of you got those 100% right? Okay, one? All right. Okay, do you understand what... Here's, here's the point I'm going to draw out on this, right? I'm not trying to embarrass you or, or kind of make fun of your knowledge of the Bible or your knowledge of pop culture. Here's what I'm trying to get at. If it's easy to confuse you on what sounds biblical is not, or what sounds worldly but is actually biblical, how do you think it is when you actually come to a false teaching? Okay? It's that subtle. It's that, it's, it's that we can fall for it because it sounds Christian or it doesn't sound Christian, and we don't actually know what or, whether or not it's in there. It's a subtle, subtle, subtle thing that happens. Now, you might actually think that it, it, it's, it's a bad thing, and because it's subtle, we are all prone to it. In fact, I think every single one of us, whether we believe it or not, you know, maybe on a subconscious level, has a belief about God, the Bible, and the church that's actually not scriptural. Right? And we ha- that is why it is so important to be in the Word of God. right? To be able to uh, judge what you think the Word of God should say versus what it actually says. 
Because I'm going to tell you something. People who are genuinely false teachers are really, really, really good at sounding biblical. Right? So it's, you need to understand that it is very subtle. So, secondly, what I need you to understand is that the reason that from time to time we need to deal with false teaching is because it's useless. And because it is useless, it will destroy you. Listen to what it says in verses 12 to 13 here I have. Talking about false teachers, it says this. These men are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast without you without fear, they are shepherds feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds. They are swept along by the winds. They are fruitless and laid on them. They are twice dead. And they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of the utter darkness has been reserved for. When it talks about the idea that it, it's a hidden reef, what, they, what, what Jude is saying is that they are a hidden danger because they are useless. Listen to all the analogies that he gives. They are shepherds that they feed themselves. That means that the flock is not looked after and cared for. They are waterless clouds. They provide no rain. How many of you would plant, a, plant crops in a place where you know you would get absolutely no water? It's useless, right? They are wild waves of the seas. They're not foaming up any fish or anything. All, they foam, all, they, all that they cast up is foam and shame. They are wandering stars. A long time ago, and even during Bible times, they used stars as navigations. Could you imagine what would happen if you gauged your direction on a ship based upon something that wanders? It's useless. And not only is it useless, if you make decisions on about it, it will probably destroy you. If you made a decision about a wandering star, about where to go on a wandering star, you could shipwreck your ship. If you planted crops in a place with no rain, you would go through a drought. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand why God talks about false teaching and he, and he puts such a dim view on it? Is because when you and I fall for it, when you and I give ourselves into it, it is, that uselessness can destroy you. It can destroy, and I'm, I'm talking about a very practical level here. I'm not talking about judge, God judging you for believing the wrong thing. I'm talking about the fact that it can ruin your relationships, it can ruin your sanity, it can ruin your affluence, it can ruin your career, it can ruin everything. And I, I don't think I need to make a big case for that. I've, I've cited a number of times about how the health and wealth movement has destroyed people because all these people, they believe that God would give them really rich houses and so they bought houses that they could not afford. And when they couldn't afford it, their lives came down and they ran into financial ruin. Their relationships might have ruined because of it and their trust in God is. God takes a dim view of it because not only does he want you to have a good life, he wants, you, he wants people to have a positive experience with the Creator. And if all these people are saying all these things about God that aren't true, and they base their decisions about how they spend their money, or how they do their relationships on it, and it ruins them, they're not going to trust Him, are they? So from time to time, 
False teaching must be addressed because we can all fall for it and because it's subtle. So that's what Jude did. He heard there was false teaching saying that, you know, God's forgiveness means that you can do everything you want and Jesus really isn't really Lord. So instead of ignoring the false teaching, he spoke into it. Well, that was then. What about now? If Jude wrote the letter to us, and he wrote it exactly the same way, and he says, guys, I want to talk to you about the common salvation. I love you guys a manner, and I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to give you some insight about what it was like about Jesus. But he heard that there was this false teaching creeping up around three hills among us. What would he say it was? And how do you think it would come in subtly? Well, like I said, friends, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I'm very, very hesitant to call out different opinions that I disagree with as false teaching in Christianity. But I believe that there are three, and I'm just going to mention two of them today for time's sake. There are two areas that the Bible speaks about that false teaching has crept inwardly, and because it has not been spoken or addressed, I think it has warped our very view of Jesus himself. And those two areas, I believe, are identity and doubt. Okay. The Bible has a lot to say about both those two subjects, both identity and doubt. And I believe that there are teachings within the church that have warped our view, not only of those issues, but of the gospel itself. A recent study came out uh, about people who I about with gender identity and uh, and the different gender and the different uh, generations that they hold. If you were born uh, before 1940, only 8.8 percent of the people living in that age would identify in that community. If you were to look at the baby boomers that number jumps up to 2% of people that identify in the the LGBT community. When you get to Generation X, that's 4%. When you get to Millennials, it's 8%. When you get to Generation Z, it is 20%. 20% of our kids identify with a different gender other than the one that God had given them. I want to be very careful about this because I, lo- I want everyone to know that we love everybody, but I think the false teaching that has infiltrated the church is that our bodies define our identity and value instead of the fact that we are made in God's image. In our gender, in our and and, and or orientation define God's image rather than God's image defining that. And it goes all the way up to the person of Jesus Christ himself. I told you that last week. Okay. And I think that throughout the next few years, one of the things that the church in North America is going to have to face is the subject of identity. We're going to have to come out strong and we're going to have to tell people that your identity isn't found in the way that you look or your marriage or your singleness or your job or what gender you think you are. It's found in the fact that you are made in his image. We got to tell people that. 
Because, friends, it is influencing how people think that Jesus is. And although I don't want to speak for Prairie, I did go to a workshop that they held, and they did. it wasn't a scientific exercise at all, but when they were talking about this very issue, they pulled the students themselves and just asked them how they felt. And I believe that Prairie has a strong biblical view on this, but the students themselves, they are struggling. I can't remember exactly what the results were, but they were, act, they were within the ballpark of that one-third. And if you really want to know, you can ask Kelly Stefan. But we have a generation of kids in the church growing up who are defining their worth other than something than Jesus Christ. I think it's time we talk about it. Number two is the issue of doubt. The Bible has a lot to say about doubt. And I'm going to talk, as these subjects come up in our doctrine statements, I, I will speak to them. But there is a movement that I am very, very concerned about within the church. And I, I don't typically want to give airtime in the church to different methods. But I actually think this one deserves a little bit. It's the idea of progressive Christianity or deconstructionalism. Okay? And it's a movement that targets people that go to the kind of churches that we do that are disenfranchised with church. And they, it's, it's, almost a, um, it's almost an emergent movement repackaged. To show you what I'm talking about, I just want to show you a quick uh, four-minute interview about someone who just came out of that movement. I don't know if you have it, but I want you to listen to what she says and why I'm concerned about it. all over. It was a great experience. But then it was after that, uh, my husband and I f- found this church in just the heart of the Bible Belt, Middle Tennessee, where we were okay. living. And we loved it. We, we, one thing we really loved about the church was how authentic it felt. The people who we found community with were just open about their struggles and uh, open about maybe even some criticisms they had of the church. And those were some of the same criticisms I had, after, especially after touring around to different churches for the better part of a decade. And so we really felt like we were home. And about eight months after we started attending the church, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group study. He said, this is going to be like seminary. You go to this four-year class and you'll come out on the other side with a seminary-level education which sounded so exciting to me, again, because that seemed to be the piece of the puzzle that was missing from my faith. I wanted to know intellectually why I believed the Bible was God's word. And so what I didn't realize, though, at the time was that the pastor had already been converted to what I would eventually learn was called progressive Christianity. And so a lot of the things that he was talking about in the class, the books we were reading, the discussions we were having— were all really challenging some of the really core foundational beliefs that I had as a Christian. Things about the Bible, especially about the Bible. You know, is the Bible God's word? Did these people we think write it, really write it? Do we have an accurate copy? How do we even know it tells the truth? Maybe we've evolved in our understanding of God beyond the Bible. Maybe we don't have to agree with the Bible anymore. Uh, other things, uh, the, the atonement, you know, Jesus saving work on the cross, that was all sort of put under this microscope and and picked apart and explained away. And so it really, it was very confusing time for me. I remember going home and I would Google stuff and try to to debate with the the teacher. I wasn't very good at it at the time. 
But there came a point when we left the church and it was really then that all of the doubts that had been planted in my heart began to take root and grow. And I, I was thrown into a, a, a deconstruction process where everything that I had believed was sort of picked apart, explained away. And I, I, I lost a lot of my faith. I can't say I fully lost my faith in Jesus, but I was intellectually persuaded that it wasn't true. And so this was very confusing for me. I cried out to God and just said, God, if you exist, if you're real, then you have to reveal yourself to me. But it can't just be by feelings because that's how my faith was informed my whole life. I would, I would get this sense of feeling the presence of God and that was evidence for me that it was real. But now that I had been sort of deconstructed intellectually, I needed intellectual answers. And so I just was like, God, if you're real, if you exist, I need to know the answers to these questions. And so long story short, the Lord led me through this amazing process of studying history, science, um, t- you know, biblical scholarship, learning the answers to some of those questions and really rebuilt my faith. Mm-hmm. But the reason that progressive Christianity is something I have a passion to talk about is because that church went on years later to identify itself as a progressive mm-hmm. Christian community. Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, okay, I had never heard that phrase before, but I thought I need to find out more about this. So I began to study it and mm-hmm. And now I try to help other Christians who yeah. might be encountering it, you know, have answers. Thanks for sharing all that. I really appreciate that. Um, I think there might be some listeners thinking this. Progressive can be a good word. Like when things are moving forward, there's growth, there's progress. Why is it used in a way to talk about an approach to Christianity that's, that's seen as dangerous, harmful? Explain some of that, why progressive Christianity is something that... Um, is worth unpacking and getting really clear about the dangers of. Right, because it's good to progress in our faith, right? right. I want to progress. Take next steps, that's how we talk about it. Yeah, I want to grow, I want to mature. I I want to be a different person than I was yesterday. I want to progress in that sense. But I think the main difference is that, first of all, we need to understand that progressive Christianity is a term that's used by progressive Christians. So this is what they call themselves. It's not a pejorative, it's not some sort of a negative thing that you know, other Christians came up with to sort of, oh, those progressive Christians. This is a a term that they call themselves. And so um, it's a phrase that uh, really has a lot to do with not just viewing ourselves as progressing in our understanding, but also thinking, well, you know, Christianity itself is progressing. So whereas historically Christians might say, the word of God is our foundation, And the reason that God's word doesn't change is because he doesn't change. God is actually not progressing. His word does not progress. But in progressive Christianity, there's this sense in which the people who walked with Jesus, the ones who knew him, the eyewitnesses to his life and death and resurrection, these represent Christianity in its infancy and therefore don't really have the highest authority to tell us what Christianity is. We're progressing. And we can look back at the writers of the Bible even and according to progressive Christianity and disagree with them because we've evolved now. Okay. All right, I'll go on for there. But I'm, I'm really nervous about any teaching that undergirds the word of God or the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And to be clear, I am not afraid of questions or afraid of doubt or people putting that. But the problem with the movement is that it's not a movement that celebrates certainty or answers. It's a movement that celebrates doubt. And I'm nervous about that. Well, for the sake of time, I'm just going to... I, I got, I'm only halfway through, so... <laughs> 
I think uh, I'll just wrap up with, with this uh, part here, and then we will have communion together, and then I'll finish the rest of the sermon next week at the camp out. Okay? How has it crept into the church? Well, as you know, as it said in, the, in Jude, it creeps in subtly, and I want to offer to you one classic way in two modern ways that false teaching comes into the church. Number one, the classic way is to really get you to question what God says without actually researching the Bible itself. It sounds a lot like this. I know that God says this, but, right? Have you ever said that? Any hands up? Oh, come on. How many of you said that even in your heart, right? All right. Did God really say that? Did he really say not to worry? But what about this? Did God really say that he, does, he wants us to master our debt? Yes, but you don't, live in the 20, you don't live in 2022. Did God say that we shouldn't live together before we're married? Yes, but in the eyes of God, we're considered married anyway. Did God really say we're supposed to forgive? Yes, but you don't know the way that you're treating him. Like, we know that God says something, but we always find a justification. Have you fallen victim to that subtlety? To bring it home, I want you to think about an issue that you're struggling with right now. From God, a direction, a promise, or a sin that you know what he says, but you're not willing to do it because. What is the thing that you know God says, but you have an objection or an excuse or a question about? I want you to push yourself and lock it in. What is your but? And I want you to understand that your objection is the subtle lie that you fell for. Okay? It's not even yours. That's how subtle it is. A question, a but. How do I know this? All this kind of thing. The other two ways that I think it subtly infiltrates the church in the modern day way is that the battleground for truth is fought both in the lecture hall and in entertainment. When Daniel went to school, we just finished a series on Daniel. Daniel went to the school of the demonic. Everything that he learned for for eight or ten hours a day was in fact against and opposed to everything that he grew up with. And I would want to say very carefully that there are ideas in the school systems and in the universities that we need to be aware of. If you want to know what the next ten years of fights the church is going to have with the culture is, Go look at the lecture halls now. And that will be those issues. And I'm not saying education is bad or, you know, is, if, it's not, if it's secular education, that's bad. That's not bad either. What I am trying to say to you is that we need to be discerning about what we're being taught, okay? And I'm, I'm not saying academia or science is wrong. I would never say that. Christians invented universities, Okay, But here's what I want you to be careful about. Whatever way you school your kids, you have to teach them how to, how to survive in an environment where everything they're, they're being taught might be wrong. They have to think for themselves. They have to think critically. Teach them that. Okay? Again, teachers are not the enemy. Science is not the enemy. I just... I just need you to know that a lot of what the church is facing right now 
comes from academia, the lecture hall. And it actually comes from the world of entertainment. Okay. And I'm not against secular music or movies or video games, and I don't want to be a prude, but I think maybe when our parents told us stuff, that stuff would rot our brains, they might be a little bit right. There's a half-truth in it. The battleground for truth for the masses, I believe, is fought in the world of entertainment. Do you know what happens when you experience good entertainment? When you engage emotionally with a good piece of literature or a good piece of music, what winds up happening is you connect relationally and emotionally with the people that you're in. You're, you read a good book and you're enthralled in the story or you watch a good movie and there's a plot twist and the character, you're like, oh, I can't believe that they do that. Or they cry. I don't get why people cry at movies if they're not real people. I went to go see the Avengers movie years ago and the movie comes out and at the end of the movie, there's that big fight scene and Captain America's like, yeah, I'm going to rule the world. And everybody stands up in the theater. Yeah! Way to go, Captain America! And I'm sitting there going, I've never been to a church where they've done that for Jesus. Right? They are people cheering and crying for people who are sought to save, for heroes that are saving them from make-believe villains. From make-believe problems. You engage in it emotionally. And when you engage in something emotionally, you open up your heart and you're a little bit more open to hear what they have to say. And that's the danger. Is in that moment, your guard is down and they can introduce ideas that are actually against the Word of God. And if you don't believe me, I, I've said this a great many times before, the best example I can think of is the Da Vinci Code. Where it's just a book about fictional conspiracy in the church. But it's got this one line in the beginning of the book that says, even though this is the work of fiction, it's based on academic research. And so what would happen is, you read the book and you get enthralled with the story. And they suggest something about Jesus that isn't true. And then it's not like, oh, because the, the fictional character said it must be true. But it makes you wonder. And then what happened, and what happened in my experience at least, is I would go home from Bible college and all my friends would be reading the books and they would be going to SFU and they would be hearing how these professors would say, oh yeah, that book is true and everything about it is academically accurate. And then they would go to their pastors and the pastors wouldn't have an answer. So they would go to their, their professors as the one of the authority, even though the academic research that their book is citing was proved false all the way in the 80s. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm, and I'm just, I'm not telling you you can't listen to music or play video games or read a good book. I'm just telling you, please be discerning about what you listen to and what you watch. Okay? Well, I have a little bit more about how to recognize a false teacher and how to guard yourself against that, but maybe I'll save that for next week. But for now, I just want you to be aware that as we go through the series, I'm not going to spend the series telling you what's wrong. I'm going to tell. The, I'm going to spend the series telling you what's right and what's good and it's true, because I want you to trust God's word. I want you to trust what this table represents. That this table represents the biggest event in history. 
Jesus' death and resurrection. And I want you to trust in that. Because I want you to know that God is good and that He loves you. So as we close today, I would like to spend some time reflecting on that. So I would ask the, the helpers to make this way forward. And I just want to, I just want, I just want you to, as they make forward, I just want you to be praying in your heart and asking the Lord that He would give you a discerning spirit.